Today is March 12th, 2021, and today we will do a deep dive into racism in America. Welcome back, Split the Difference friends and Split the Difference family. We got a fantastic episode for you today, if I do say so myself, because I think that we are bringing you an incredible, awesome, deep dive into probably one of the more popular topics that is floating around political circles today, and that is racism in America. It will be a little bit of a different episode. However, I can say with a fair degree of certainty that this is going to be the best podcast that we have done thus far. We will be looking at stuff from both sides of the aisle. However, we will not be following our normal set of you know two or three stories that are happening in current events or current political you know landscapes of today. Instead, we will basically be looking at one specific topic and really trying to dive into and parse through a good bit of what is going on in that specific topic within the realm of American politics. So I hear the phrase systemic racism very frequently tossed around in political circles, especially from political pundits and whatnot. Um, And there are many on the left that swear up and down that it has existed and continues to exist to this day and is the root cause of why many black and brown minorities in America are substantially disenfranchised compared to their white counterparts. Whereas on the right, systemic racism was abolished with the end of Jim Crow, with the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts within the 50s and 60s and no longer exists within our modern society. So today I will be purposefully leaving much of my opinion out of this as I mean as much as I possibly can so as to allow for my listeners to be able to just get the facts as far as I've been able to research them and the differences between what each party has to say about this specific subject and then decide for themselves what it is that they believe or what it is that they want to research more. Uh, My goal with this, like I have in many of the podcasts that I've done in the past where I've focused on one specific subject, my goal is to hopefully present the facts to you, my listeners, in as unbiased of a way as I possibly can so that y'all will then be able to make uh, presumptions or to be able to make and formulate your own opinions based upon the information that you have been given. And it's not to say that I don't have an opinion on all this. I just think that it's more important in specific episodes like this where we do a bit of a deeper dive into one specific subject where my opinion is not on the forefront of the purpose of the episode. So with all of that having been said, let's go ahead and hop on into our only story, our only focus of the day, systemic and institutional racism within the United States of America. So before we start getting into all of the nitty gritty, okay, it's important that we lay out a few definitions around what it is that we're talking about, primarily systemic racism and institutional racism. These are two terms that are floated around very, very frequently, and I think it's important for us to establish what those definitions will be before we get into the history and the effects of each of them in America. So as defined by the United Nations Human Rights Office and Commission, Systemic racism is an infrastructure of rulings, ordinances, or statutes promulgated by a sovereign government or authoritative entity, whereas such ordinances and statutes entitles one ethnic group in a society certain rights and privileges while denying other groups in that society these same rights and privileges because of long-established cultural prejudices, religious prejudices, fears, myths, and xenophobias held by the entitled group. 
Okay, so institutional racism, then, is the racial attitudes found in an ethnic group's traditions, beliefs, opinions, and myths that are firmly ingrained in the very fiber of the ethnic group's cultural paradigm, where such traditions, beliefs, opinions, and myths have been practiced and sustained for so long that they are accepted as common facts, understood to be normal behavior practices, whereas such practices, in effect, marginalize and demonize the human worth of another ethnic group. So those are a lot of big words. Systemic racism is basically that which is promulgated by a government through laws, court rulings, and legislation that purposefully demonstrates against one race or props another race up. An example here would be Jim Crow laws of the 19, early 1900s up through the 1960s. They were laws that were placed purposefully by the governments uh, at the time in order to be able to systemically uh, push down blacks and minorities and raise up whites through the rulings and legislation. Institutional racism is promulgated by the nation's overall culture, traditions, and beliefs. Okay, An example here would be in the early 1900s, whites would not eat or drink after blacks because they believed that black people carried diseases. Okay, This was not promulgated by the government, government saying that black people could not drink after or use the same glasses that white people would drink. It was just the bl- the white people at the time believed that black people carried diseases because that was culturally what was what was normally promoted within white circles at the time. So they refused to drink after or be within close contact of blacks because they thought that they would actually get sick if they did that. So there's a difference between institutional and systemic racism, which will be very, very important as we get into the episode. So next thing that we need to do, I think, is parse through a bit of the history in America of systemic racism specifically, because a lot of that is incredibly important to how a lot of this is viewed nowadays. Okay, so the primary and the first thing that we have to start with is slavery, because it is in a lot of ways, the number one example of systemic and institutional racism that existed in America at the very beginning of its founding and lasted all the way up through the 1860s, the mid-1860s, where it was then abolished through the Emancipation Proclamation, the Civil War, and then subsequent 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. So, American slavery was an absolutely abhorrent institution, to say the least, and that is something that both the left and the right agree on wholeheartedly. However, one thing that's important, I think, for us to realize, to recognize, and start to really dive into is the American style of slavery, the American flavor of slavery, was in many ways very, very different than the slavery that we actually see throughout history. Much of American slavery was heavily dependent upon stripping the individual slave of their original culture in whatever means possible, okay? The first step of this, of course, was actually uprooting the people from their native lands and then taking them a continent away. Uh, Of course, many slaves were brought to America, but there were also plenty of slaves that were brought to Central and South America as well uh, from specifically the African continent through what was called the Middle Passage, or basically... European settlers and European powers would go through and they would purchase Africans from other Africans and actually historically primarily Muslims as well in the area that were selling African slaves. And then they would take those African slaves to a lot of the parts of the New World because that was where much of the newer colonies or the latest colonies had been established that were in a lot of ways propping up a lot of the European empires of the time. 
So this was done stripping people of their individual identity and who they were before they were a slave was done in a wide gambit of different fashions. Most notably, it was done through religion. So much of this was done through conversion to an incredibly twisted version of Christianity, whereby through absolutely terrible misinterpretations of the Bible, black people and slaves, Africans at the time, uh, were convinced that they descended from a quote, cursed lineage in Northern Africa. Most of this was actually taken primarily out of Genesis nine, uh, and through the, what they called the cursed lineage of ham or ham, uh, who was a son of Noah. So if you go through and you read Genesis nine, this was the primary passage that was used once uh, African slaves had been born and it, or had been taken onto a plantation, they would be taught, on a, on, sometimes taught to read through the Bible or the only... At, any time of any type of knowledge, I guess, that they would be getting on the plantation would be the Bible, because there were a lot of ministries at the time that were there for it to be able to convert the African slaves to Christianity. And a lot of that was so they could actually, through religion, subjugate blacks at the time to convince them that they were actually meant to be slaves for the rest of their lives because they came out of a cursed lineage that was wrought through Noah at the time. So if you've never read Genesis 9, I would strongly suggest going and looking into that, reading into it. It's a very interesting and absolutely, really, absolutely heartbreaking part of the history of Christianity in America specifically because it really was used in many ways to uh, condone the subjugation of African slaves. So the next way that this was done was through clothing and belongings. So the slaves were obviously not going to be allowed to wear anything that they would have identified with uh, with it from their home continent out of Africa. And then obviously, slowly but surely, over generations, the entirety of their culture is completely stripped of them in terms of any type of clothing or belongings that they would have even been able to smuggle over with them from Africa, even though it would have been highly unlikely that they were able to get anything over through the Middle, middle Passage. Uh, the next would have been not allowing any sort of native languages at all. So forcing people to use English as the primary language through which that they had to communicate. Uh, there is a lot of culture that is continued to be passed down from generation to generation just through language. Uh, and it is proven. I think there were actually, there's been a plenty of studies that have gone uh, uh, that have focused primarily on language as a, as a, a facilitator of culture within groups of people. So a lot of whites refuse to allow blacks to speak any other language outside of English. And then the next thing, believe it or not, is actually not having any possibility of freedom at all. So... Uh, slaves in America were, there was no possibility, there was no chance of them being able to have, have any type of freedom, which is actually very counter or contrary to the very long-standing practice of slavery before America, which was really more in the, in the form of bond servitude or maybe indentured servitude is what you may have heard as well, um, uh, of the purpose of indentured servitude or bond servitude, we actually see many, many cases of this in the Bible as well. As a, if you just look at the Bible for, as a historical document, you can look at it and see uh, plenty of different places where bond servitude is mentioned and actually described um, as you know, basically you are in debt to somebody. And as, because you are in debt to somebody, you have to serve them for a certain period of time. But after that period of time is up, you are then released. So we saw this all throughout the Roman and the Greek empires as well. Uh, the ancient worlds prior to 
uh, any type of colonial powers. And then it was really the British, the Spanish, the Belgium, the Belgians, and then the French, uh, that primarily instituted, uh, what we saw as slavery coming into the 16, 17, 18 and 1900s. Um, so, Another, and I think something that we have to talk about is actually the purposeful splitting up of family units as well, uh, was incredibly prevalent on slave plantations. So you would, if you did buy an entire family of slaves, you would very, very purposefully split the mother and father up and split the children up from their parents so that they didn't feel like they had any connection to, or any, any people, any group at all that they could associate with, even down to as small as just a family unit. The purpose was to break people down as much as you possibly could so that the only service that they felt like they could have would be towards the master of that plantation. So, Although slavery as a whole is an absolutely terrible institution that has quite literally been around since humans have been on earth, there are some different, definite differences between the slavery uh, that we see described in ancient texts, whether it's Babylonian or Egyptian or Hebrew or Roman or Greek, whatever the text may be, um, they, they're all starkly different from the institution of slavery that we actually see in America. So I talked a little bit about the Bible earlier, but a great example is actually within the Old Testament of the Bible. The Israeli people, by commanded by their law, uh, were forced to release slaves or servants that they had underneath their possession every seven years. Although there were, you know, several caveats to this, uh, they were actually required to release the bond servants that they had after they had been in service of them for seven years. Um, this was because at that point in time, it was not a presumption that you would purchase a slave or purchase someone and then actually keep them for the entirety of their life. Uh, it was, it was pretty well established. And I guess within the ancient world thought of as normal to actually release servants or slaves after a period of time that they have served you where they're debt would actually be up. So um, now next, the next part of history that we have to get into uh, and the next form of systemic racism is actually going to be around Jim Crow laws, primarily within the American South and Southeast. So Jim Crow laws were started after the Civil War during a period known as Reconstruction. The South had just been defeated in one of the bloodiest wars in American history, and they now had to grapple with the fact that there were now millions of black and previously African people that lived within the continent of the United States and lived within the borders of the South, that was the Confederacy, that were now free to do whatever it is that they wanted to do legally underneath the laws and rules of the United States. Being fearful of a complete and total takeover of the society that the whites had created by the blacks because they held a significant portion of the population, that being the blacks, uh, whites in government started to implement laws that mandated segregation and subjugation of their black and minority counterparts. Also, the reason why I'm specifically talking about uh, black people at the time is because, yes, there were other minorities such as Native Americans at the time or even maybe Latino or people of Hispanic origin as well. However, their populations were significantly smaller than those that were uh, African Americans at the time. Uh, so I'm primarily focusing on blacks because they were the largest portion by racial population of slaves in the United States. So... With that, um, as these laws that were meant to subjugate blacks at the time became more prevalent, it eventually went up to the Supreme Court to be decided whether or not they were constitutional. And within eight, in the year of 1896, there was a case called Plessy versus Ferguson, 
sometimes pronounced as Plessy versus Ferguson, uh, the, where the Supreme Court actually upheld the Jim Crow laws and formally laid out its definition of, quote, separate but equal, okay? Meaning that it is okay to have segregated facilities, but they must be equivalent to the facilities of whites. This impacted every single area of American life from top to bottom, from schools to bathrooms to restaurants to hospitals to transportation. Everything had to have completely segregated options. Obviously, as many of you know, the black facilities were never in the same standard or the same condition as the white facilities, and it obviously would completely disadvantage the blacks, and very, very purposefully so. So, there were also a set of laws uh, specifically around uh, financing to uh, black and African-American people at the time that was called redlining, okay? Redlining or the purposeful sectioning off of black families on certain sides of town was meant as a means by which to have very, very poor lending practices that made it almost impossible for blacks to get loans in the same ways that their white counterparts could. So what this would mean, redlining specifically, was we're going to sex section off a portion of town that is going to be the black side of town and that is where they're going to live if they want to get a loan or a mortgage for a house that is across town on the white side of town they will not be able to do that they will have to stay in this specific portion of town because much of the schools at the time the public schools at the time were funded by and many today are still funded by uh, the taxes and the, the income taxes, or mainly the property taxes of the areas in which they are located, uh, redlining allowed for uh, the, the community to basically put blacks in an area that would be incredibly impoverished, very, very little job opportunity. And then of course the schools in the area would become subsequently very, very poor as well because they didn't have the wealth needed to be able to actually push forward good education for the children that were coming into the schools. So most of these systemic, systemically racist poverties were completely done away with in the 1950s and 1960s through various Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act. It actually made it illegal federally to discriminate against anyone based upon the color of their skin. Okay, so current day, where are we at in the current day? There are still very, very blaring disparities between the white and black households across the United States, okay? In, tw in 2016, the median net worth of a white family was about $171,000, while the median net worth of a black family was about $17,000, putting the average white family in terms of median, uh, median household wealth about 10 times higher than that of a black family. Blacks make up about 13% of the population in America, uh, but hold less than 3% of the wealth in the United States, and that has actually been trending down. Uh, in fact, when we're looking at the median wealth between white and black households, whites are significantly better when broken down by almost every single segmentation that you can possibly think of, whether it's by age, whether it's by stage of life, whether it's by number of children, whether it's by inheritances, almost their blacks are significantly disadvantaged or of a lower wealthy quality than the vast majority of whites within the country. Um, all of that is according to Brookings Institute. Uh, they've done a, a number of fairly uh, in-depth studies on wealth and racial inequality in the United States. Uh, black unemployment also tends to sit about twice the number of what white employment normally do unemployment normally does, and that's been the case for about approximately the last 60 years or so, um, even amongst college graduates as well. 
So especially in recessionary periods, you actually see black unemployment go up higher, so it, more than two times higher than white unemployment. But just about always, there's a there's a very, very significant line. If you watch the unemployment line based upon race, uh, whites will be at 6% and blacks will be at you know 12%. Whites will be at 3.5%, blacks will be at around 7%. Uh, in fact, one of the few times that this actually changed was most recently during the Trump administration where black unemployment and minority unemployment specifically was at one of the lowest points that it had ever been in history, um, which is very interesting, I, I think, because, you know, for the most part, you don't norm, you wouldn't normally expect that, I think, from a lot of the rhetoric that you hear around Donald Trump. So another disheartening area of inequality also is surrounding incarceration. So according to the United States Bureau for Justice Statistics, in 2018, black males accounted for 34% of the total male prison populations, while white males accounted for 29%, Hispanic males accounted for 24%. The imprisonment rate for black males is now right around 22, almost 2,300 people per 100,000 black male residents, okay? That is 5.8 times higher than it is for white males at 392 for per 100,000 people. So basically what that's saying is if you have 100,000 black people, there are going to be around 2,300 of them that are currently incarcerated. Whereas with whites, it's going to be right around 400 out of 100,000. Significant difference there. So approximately 40% of all of the arrests in the United States are due to some sort of marijuana possession. 40%. That actually blew my mind when I read that statistic. Um, although many studies have proved that both white people and black people actually use and uh, smoke marijuana at the exact same rates by a wide variety of different, uh, different studies that have been done, Blacks are 3.7 times more likely to be arrested for possession. The worst part is, although very little, very, very few possession arrests actually end up with some sort of felony or long-term imprisonment, roughly about 6% of them, they all go on each person's record and can significantly hamper the person from getting, from getting any type of job opportunity in the future. So, as you might, I guess, kind of read into that a little bit, if black people are almost four times more likely to be arrested for some sort of possession, and it honestly depends on the state, I believe in Idaho, uh, they're, I think, almost eight to nine percent times more likely to be arrested for simple possession of marijuana. All of those go on your permanent record. And as a result, when you get any type of background checked or if there's any type of check that's uh, there for any type of employment that shows up on that on that background checked and on your permanent record and you know, it may hamper you from getting the job. So the, in the United States in the early 1980s, there were less than 500,000 people in prison. Okay. This is right around the time of the war on drugs was really kicking off. Okay. There are now over 2 million people in the United States. The United States currently sits as the most incarcerated first world population within the entire world. And that rate has the rate of growth from 500,000 to 2 million people within the prison population of the United States is significantly higher than the increase of overall population that you see in the United States over the same time period. So United States population has grown since, since 1980 
has grown by about 47% from 226 million in 1980 to sitting right around 332 million now. While the U.S. prison population, like I said, had gone from 500,000 to 2 million, which is about a 300% increase over that exact same period of time, with black males especially making up the largest percentages of the inmates. So, that's the history that we have about racism in America. That is the current state of different types of inequalities that are happening within the United States currently. What do both sides of the aisle have to say about this? So the left. The left has an unadulterated claim that racism is so prevalent within modern society that it affects every single aspect of our culture. It permeates our schools, it permeates our housing, our banking, and our way of thinking. And as a result, even though it is illegal currently to discriminate against someone of a, because of the color of their skin, blacks in America are still disenfranchised in every day, basically in every single way that they can, every day, because racism has become completely institutionalized okay much of the right wants to see a significant close in the gap of wealth between or i'm sorry much of the left wants to see a significant close in the gap of wealth between black and white americans and believes that since the united states government was responsible for much of that disparity the disparity there needs to be legislation that helps to reverse the negative impact of previously egregious policy okay so a great example of this is affirmative action which requires schools or other institutions or federal or public institutions to enroll or employ black americans uh, at a greater numbers or hit specific quotas in order to be able to bring black Americans out of the poverty that they feel like the government actually started and implemented within these black people's lives. Another great example is welfare or other social programs to help lift poor people, oftentimes minorities, out of poverty. The idea behind this is if there are people that are in poverty, the government should be willing and should help them out in order to help bring them out of that poverty and get them above the poverty line. Um, or another example that is pushed very, very hard on the left is the restructuring of the criminal justice system that they believe is more negatively impacting blacks than it is whites, or pushing for mandated diversity training in public or even private sector jobs, all the way down to, and I'm sure many of you have heard the word before, reparations. Uh, which uh, basically the idea behind it is the government should pay money to blacks that have historically had families within the United States as a means by which to compensate them for the previously egregious policy that had been in place that subjugated them and their ancestors. So, this is actually being done currently in a county outside of Chicago right now, where they have a fund that has been built up from taxes actually on marijuana sales and donations in the area, because marijuana is now legal to be sold in Illinois, um, that will be redistributed back to blacks that descended from uh, people that grew up in the area and lived in the area between the years of 1919 and 1969. The idea is their families underwent horrible things. They were incredibly disenfranchised. So now there's going to be a need to give back to those blacks for housing, for um, uh, whatever else, you know, other things that they need, helping them to get loans, helping them to start businesses and helping them to get out of poverty in the area. So what does the right have to say? The right agrees that racism is a problem and is still around, but does not believe that it is systemic in any way anymore. Okay. And this is why the definitions are incredibly important. Uh, most importantly here, 
on the right side of the aisle. They do not believe that it is the government's job to fix it. Okay, because the Jim Crow laws were abolished during the 50s and the 60s, blacks in America have much the same opportunities as white do as white people do from every single measurable statistic. Okay, in terms of opportunity. Right. Uh, This would be the argument from the right. Oftentimes, conservative cite the difficulties of very poor, primarily white residents in West Virginia or the Appalachian Mountains um, as great examples of just the problem that we have in America is not a race problem. It's actually a poverty problem. There are white people in West Virginia that have very, very little opportunity, uh, that have very little means by which to pull themselves out of poverty, uh, just in the same ways that there are many blacks that are living in inner city areas in Baltimore or Chicago uh, that have very little opportunities to be able to pull themselves out of uh, poverty as well. So the problem is not a race problem. It is actually a poverty problem within the United States. Many on the right point to policies used by the government to try and help fix the problems uh, that they created through subjugation of, of blacks and minority people in the country um, as only exacerbating the issues and making them worse. So, for example, in the black community, single motherhood has increased significantly over the last 100 years, going up from about 20% pre the Great Depression to right around 70% right now. Many on the right point to that, and they say this is a fantastic example of uh, right around the time of the Great Depression, the welfare welfare and other social programs implemented to be able to help pull people out of poverty actually had the exact opposite effect and were, in a lot of ways, instigators to these problems. The war on poverty did not work because they basically strip poor black and minority communities from the incentive to work and create generational wealth. So a a common theme and a common thread amongst uh, many conservatives on the right side of the aisle is uh, actually giving more stuff and more things to black Americans doesn't help them. It actually inhibits them in a lot of ways from being able to accumulate generational wealth. I think I want to be very, very clear, though, and say you will find very, very few people on the right side of the aisle that will say that racism does not exist. Okay, I've not I've never heard or listened to any type of conservative pundit or any type of conservative friend of mine that has said racism no longer exists in America. They will, however, oftentimes say that racism is not nearly as prevalent in modern society as it was decades ago which I think objectively is true, okay? Their fear is, however, that racism is being used as a means by which to forcibly redistribute wealth across the United States, akin to that of socialism or communism, both of which promote and promulgate redistribution through the instigation of class conflicts. So... The right's biggest fear is the redistribution of wealth, not because they think that there is, uh, it is a good thing for there to be poverty, but because they don't want there to be a government-mandated redistribution of wealth that is built upon the backs of class warfare between impoverished people and people that are very wealthy. Okay, And that is, that is an incredibly important, I think, distinction to make there is that many conservatives don't look at the problem of racism today and say that it doesn't exist anymore. They say that the problem of racism is not instigated by the government and therefore should not be solved by the government. They would very likely agree that there is still institutional racism in the sense that uh, there are still people that are very racist, there are still uh, horrible Uh, maybe ways of thinking that many white people have that are purposefully pushing against blacks in America. However, they will say that this is not promulgated by the government itself. 
So this is why it's incredibly important to understand and have down the different definitions between systemic and institutional racism. I know that sounds like semantics, but differentiating the two is, is absolutely key. The right oftentimes says that there's no such thing as systemic racism in America anymore which by the definition laid out by the United States Human Rights Commission is technically correct. And actually there was a paper done by the United Nations where it went through and talked about how systemic racism within the United States is actually technically no longer prevalent. It's no longer there. However, uh, it is, you know, because it is technically illegal to discriminate against anyone for any type of racial uh, r racial means, right? That's it's it's illegal for you to say that you're not going to serve somebody or do something for somebody because of the color of their skin. However, institutional racism, by the definition we used earlier, could very much still be alive and well. The difficulty is institutional racism is much more difficult to measure, and it is likely impossible to get rid of completely. Okay. It's just an unfortunate fact that we are sinful human beings, and as a result, there will be people that believe and say horrible things. That just is, it just is an unfortunate fact about the world in which we live. As a result, institutional racism will be very, very diff difficult to get away or to completely stamp out. Okay, so the reason why this conversation is important is because oftentimes it seems like both sides are totally opposed and there's no way to find any sort of middle ground. However, after having conversations about solutions and not just assuming the motives of people before they even talk, uh, oftentimes you, you find that many people on the right and the left agree that racism is a very difficult subject within the United States and they want to be able to push forward ideas and conversations around how to solve that and how to make it better. Okay. And there's not a lot of people that I meet on either side of the aisle that are like, you know, I don't want to talk about this at all. I think this is stupid. This is a conversation that's not worth having. Uh, there's no such thing as racism or we don't need to worry about it at all anymore. That oftentimes is not the case. Although racism has been prevalent in America since its founding, there's no doubt that it, of course, has improved. This conversation is being had more and more, which is a very, very good thing. And my hope is through uh, different mediums and different means, uh, many people will be able to have conversations about, uh, you know, hopefully well-educated and informed opinions about how to be able to push back racism within our society and hopefully you know, make the conversation better and make America better as we kind of go forward with some of the more difficult issues of the day. So that is all the information that I have for you today. I know that that was a lot of information coming at you very, very quickly. So if you have any questions, if you have any concerns, if you want to talk to me about any of this, please feel free to reach out to me and let me know because this is a conversation that is important. It is one that needs to be had and I'm honestly totally open to talking about it. I, I think that it is, it is something that hopefully people will be, are becoming more and more open to uh, having the conversation around and hopefully it interests a lot of people as well. So with all of that having been said, our last little segment that we're going to do is something that made me smile. So something that made me smile today is actually going to be our next guest episode. As many of you know, we've been rolling out a guest episode once every two weeks, and the next person that we're having on is going to be a super fun and I think very, very interesting conversation that many of you will enjoy and have a ton of fun listening to. I'm super excited about that. It should be coming out next week, hopefully, fingers crossed, so y'all will be able to listen to it and enjoy it and give me all your feedback and let me know what you love about it. 
uh, because I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. So with all of that having been said, that is the end of our episode today. Thank you so much for stopping by and for checking us out. As always, y'all, find me on Instagram at Split the Difference Podcast. I'm on Facebook and I'm on YouTube at Split the Difference and my website at splitthedifference.com with only one T. Drop me some likes and subscribes. That always goes such a long way for getting me in the ears of people that otherwise would never have the opportunity to be able to listen to me. As always, y'all, we're going to do our best to be level-headed. We're always going to stay reasonable. And of course, we're going to split the difference. This is Austin Taylor.